I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity, auth, versioning, and more. Thanks, everyone, again, for joining the API Intersection podcast. A fan favorite topic, we'll be uh, probably diving into GraphQL quite a bit today with Jason Ball from WP Engine. Co-hosting this time is Phil from our team at Stoplight. So maybe Phil, tell us a little bit about what you do at Stoplight, and then Jason, give us kind of an overview of what brings you to an API podcast. Hey, yeah. So I've been helping out with kind of product design for a while, kind of working on Spectral Prism and more recently, Elements. And now I'm switching to more of a dev role role. So I have a bit more time to do fun stuff like this podcast. Jason Ball, like you said, engineer at WP Engine. I work on WP GraphQL, which is a free open source WordPress plugin that turns WordPress sites into GraphQL API server. So I've been working on that for about five years and just since February at WP Engine. Yeah, it was... I- tripped across a story, I guess, from WP Engine about this thing. And it, the gist that I got was that you actually got the gig from working on this thing, right? Yeah. So I, I've been working on it as an just open source community project since 2016. And then a year and a half ago, or about two years ago, I was hired by Gatsby to keep working on it because Gatsby Gatsby's a headless... Well, it's a JavaScript framework for building static sites or mm-hmm. even dynamic sites. And WordPress being a, the biggest or the most used word CMS in the world, Gatsby was like, hey, we need to tap into that. So they hired me to keep working on it to take advantage of that market. And then some priorities were shifted there and WP Engine said, hey, we want to continue your work on this. So they picked me up in February. And yeah, so I've been for both companies, been working on this project and the ecosystem around it and the tools around it. So just giving folks the opportunity to use WordPress as a CMS, but get the data in different ways other than the PHP render layer that is provided by WordPress. Well, it's very cool. I know uh, at Stoplight, we have a bit of a history of hiring people through open source work and kind of helping fund contributors and maintainers and stuff. So I love stories like that. Super cool. I guess for like WP Engine or maybe even Gatsby here, like what's the big push behind having GraphQL as a way to connect to these things? Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons. So WordPress obviously is, it's used by 43, 44% of the web right now. So a lot of organizations trust WordPress to manage their content, but there's been a rise in JavaScript frameworks and front-end technology that the WordPress PHP render layer might not meet the needs for a lot of projects where something like Gatsby, which is very performance first, might meet those needs. Or Next has a lot of interesting things where like the build step in JavaScript land can prevent you from shipping bugs to production where there's no build step in PHP. You can set up linters and things like that. But so a lot of developers are turning to JavaScript to do a lot of work, plus boot camps and anything like that. That's what you're learning, right? So new developers, no JavaScript, might not know PHP, right? So you have a lot of investment in WordPress as a CMS, but now if you're investing in new developers, they might not know it or whatever. So the, yeah, so you have the balance of technologies. And then in some cases, you need data outside of PHP in general. Like when I started WP GraphQL, I worked at a newspaper and we had native iOS and Android applications and they're not rendering in PHP. So we needed to get data 
from WordPress. And then we also had print systems that needed to get data out of WordPress. So WordPress was the primary place the writers and editors were working, got it on the web first, and then it went out to print, went out to the iOS and Android apps, and then also got syndicated to other places. So we needed data as a first-class citizen, not just the templates that you see on the web. So I think a lot of organizations need the data in various ways. And so using WordPress as a headless CMS has kind of risen in popularity over the past few years. And 20, I believe it's 2016, WordPress brought in a REST API, which didn't exist before. And that kind of helped a little bit with the attraction to using WordPress as a headless CMS. We used it at the newspaper, had a lot of pain with it for the use cases we needed. So WP GraphQL started after trying to do some things with the REST API. And yeah, so from then it's given a lot of a lot of folks just a lot more flexibility to to use data in the way they want it. So you said there was a lot of pain with kind of the REST side. And so presumably the GraphQL thing here is solving a problem. What would you summarize kind of the problem that it's solving for you here? Yeah, I think the when it first started, the two main problems we were having was the a lot of callbacks to get data. So we were doing syndication of data. So it was well, GraphQL is usually used, like I said, for JavaScript or whatever front ends. Our main primary use case when it first started was syndicating data PHP to PHP. And sometimes it was pushing data, sometimes it was listening to events and then pulling the data. And so part of it was some performance issues. So there's a lot of, like when in REST, everything is individual resources. And so if you need nested resources, you have to get the first resource, figure out what the relationships are, then make calls back for the related ones. And if there's subsequent relations after that, you have to do the same thing over and over. And so part of it was actual machine performance. Part of it was developer performance, right? Like if I got to stitch all these things together, that takes me time to figure out how to do it and maintain that over time. And then along that side with the developer experience, that was our other big problem is how can we maintain this code over time? REST API calls are very implicit, right? So you just hit an endpoint and you get something back from the server really fast to get working with. But if something on the server changes and your application's broken, it can be difficult to debug that six months down the road, especially if the API doesn't have good updated documentation and things like that. GraphQL requests are very explicit. So you actually write the query for down to the exact field that you want to interact with. And so if something does break, which it probably will still, something does break, you can at least understand the intent of whoever wrote the code and figure it out a little bit easier where like we had REST endpoints that had thousand fields being returned. And it's like, if one of those fields changed and something was broken, it can be difficult to figure out, okay, it was working in this state, but now it's not in this state. So what changed? And if 500 fields changed or you know some mistake on the server was made, it's like, man, how do we track this down? I don't understand what the person who wrote the code a year ago wanted from that endpoint. Like, and so you got to do a lot of digging. Obviously, you can usually figure it out, but the explicit nature of GraphQL helped our team work a little bit better and move things around over time. So it solved some performance callback issues, things like that. And then, yeah, some developer experience issues as well. So, I mean, you describe a couple of things in there that I key in on. One, you're kind of describing like N plus one calls, meaning you like, yeah. like get like a list of things that you then have to go like get more things for each of those. Yeah. You also describe like large kind of result sets, things like that. 
Like there's definitely a sentiment out there in this scenario that you're describing that like the real problem was that your REST API wasn't well-designed enough, right? And that that GraphQL is a Band-Aid for a problem in this case. Like how would you respond to that in this case? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. So yeah, and some of our pain was specific to the WordPress implementation of the REST API. So that's also part of it too, is like, what is a REST API, right? Like (laughs) every REST API is different. And that's also part of it too, is like the tooling around it. It's like, okay, one Google's REST API versus Facebook's versus Yelp's versus anyone else. Like, unless you're on a standard like Swagger or whatever, OData or whatever, it's very inconsistent. So WordPress is just another implementation, right? There's not great tooling around it. There's lack of enforcement. So I know some like Swagger, for example, is kind of like, I think has the documentation and relationships kind of thought about. WordPress doesn't. WordPress has an optional schema, so you can register fields to be part of a schema. But WordPress is its big extendable ecosystem, right? And that schema in the WordPress REST API is not enforced. So you can have fields that show up in responses that were never part of the schema or vice versa. You can actually register fields to the schema, but not include them in your payloads. So with that, and that this is very specific for WordPress implementation, but with, mm-hmm. with that, it's very difficult to build functioning applications when things aren't predictable. So that was part of our issues. And a lot of it was, a lot of it came down to our extensions of the WordPress API as well. But there wasn't enough guardrails in place where GraphQL has a lot of guardrails, right? Like you can't register a field and not have it show up in the schema. Like it's not an option. It either is in the schema or it doesn't exist. And then with that, you have documentation for it. Might not be the best documentation. You can still have poorly named fields and poorly described fields, but it's there and folks can see, folks can use tools like graphical or whatever to see what exists in the API. And then you can track that over time. You can see what clients are using down to the field, what data. So if you ever make a breaking change, you can know ahead of time, oh, is any client asking for this specific field? We're typically in REST, you know, they need this resource, but you're not sure what field is important to the client. So if we need to change that one field, is it safe? We don't know. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you point out throughout this and you're mentioning Swagger and some people know it now as open API, same thing, yeah. right? Old name. That that I think in a lot of cases gives more kind of typing or more yeah. of a contract guarantee. And it's true that when those things are lacking, it feels like you're kind of in the wind a little bit that uh, yeah. I imagine GraphQL helps in that regard. I think it helps that it GraphQL kind of requires it too. So it can be seen as a positive or a negative, but with OpenAPI, it's like an optional thing. It feels extra optional because it's like usually just a file in your GitHub repo somewhere. And those things are often not tied together. So people can use it to just make documentation after the fact that then kind of ages and it becomes this inaccurate artifact that just floats around near your code somewhere. And more and more, I'm seeing people trying to kind of use it to power stuff in their code base. But that's still kind of a power move that you have to think about. Some JavaScript frameworks, some PHP frameworks have extensions or middlewares that you can kind of say, hey, look at that open API file over there. Then when someone makes a request in, reject it if it doesn't follow this contract, which means that you have that kind of one-on-one pairing with open API and your code. In fact, there's less code to try and keep 
in line with the open API because the open API is powering the code. But that's one of those things you have to know about and decide to do and find a framework that supports it. So that's not something that everyone's doing for sure. It's not like part of REST. Like you don't find a REST framework that does that by default. You kind of have to enable that yourself. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the allure of like, you know, GraphQL and even gRPC these days is like, it's kind of batteries included. You get a lot of the stuff for free, right? I guess the other like general thing that you tend to hear with GraphQL stuff is like, well, you know, it's great for flexibility, but this could set you up for some scale issues. So yeah, I know like in your case, it seems like you're building this open source piece that people are generally using on their individual kind of blog site or whatever. But is WP Engine or anyone else here kind of running this component at larger scale for like kind of yeah. a SaaS hosted blog? Yeah. So like I mentioned, I worked in newspapers, a large organization. We had 54 newspapers across the country. All 54 of them are using WP GraphQL in production. And they're not small names like Denver Post, for example, is was my home office. And then we have a dozen newspapers in California, like East Bay Times and San Jose. I can't remember the name of that one, but whatever. So a lot of big publishers were the first use case. And then Players Tribune is using it. Like Meow Wolf is using it. QZ.com, another big publisher is using it. So their whole front end is a JavaScript rendered front end and using WP GraphQL. So there's a lot of enterprise organizations that are using it in production. And you were asking about like SaaS though, like is there a place where I can well, sign like- up? Like, for instance, you know, WordPress.com, you can go like host your blog site there versus going and standing up your own instance on a cloud provider or something, right? And and I'll admit, I'm not like super familiar with WP Engine. I think I've drank with some WP Engine people in Austin at some point, but uh, that's probably about as good as it gets. Yeah. So, yeah, WP Engine focuses on WordPress hosting and you can do whatever you want with it. So, if you want, we have several thousand sites on WP Engine that do use WP GraphQL. Like according to the packages, we have like 126,000 installs of WP GraphQL, definitely not all on WP Engine. So yeah, people are using it in all sorts of different ways. Some of them for, I would say Gatsby and Next are kind of the two most popular use cases for it. People building JavaScript front ends, getting data out of WordPress. So it, it opens up a market to a whole new user base that you know, folks that know JavaScript well, don't know PHP, previously would say no to clients about, ah, oh, sorry, I don't know WordPress. I'm not going to take on this project. Ah, yeah. but I know JavaScript. Now I don't have to know WordPress. So it's opening that up. There are some projects, though. There's one called like Treacle WP, I believe. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like T-R-E-A-C-L-E, I think. And there, go click. They'll set up WordPress for you with APIs. And then, so you don't have to worry about the hosting. It's just you get the WordPress dashboards with the APIs and then you can treat it like a Contentful or whatever where you're not managing the the servers and the databases and whatnot. So there are services like that now that are popping up. WP Engine doesn't offer it, possibly will at some point. Not sure. It's not like something we've talked about on the roadmap that I know of. Yep. I guess the other piece here that I should try to clarify. And I mean, I looked through kind of the open source project a bit, but didn't like dig through in code review or anything. Is this built kind of on top of WordPress's REST API or is it direct to database? Yeah, it's uh, it's direct to database and existing WordPress mechanism. So yeah, when you make a GraphQL request, there's internal mechanisms in WordPress, such as WP query class and WP user query classes. So there's these classes that talk to the database, but then they also do other things like 
cache objects or pull objects out of caches. So if you set up a memcache or Redis or some other persistent object cache, it will take advantage of those layers of WordPress. And then it also takes advantage of other layers of WordPress. Like I mentioned, you can set up memcache or Redis or whatever. WordPress is very hookable and filterable. So you can mm-hmm. hook into various spots. So we respect those mechanisms of WordPress. And then we also respect things like authentication, authorization layers of WordPress too. So you can use WP GraphQL, not just to read public data, like you would RSS or REST or whatever, but you can also do private data that's based on who you are and what capabilities you have. So you can write data back. That's what we were doing at the newspaper. We had a lot of, like I mentioned, syndication. So mutations in GraphQL were actually our first use case more than queries. We needed to send data and we wanted to control specific shape and specific responses to that. And we could have done some of this with REST. It's not like it would have been impossible to do, but we just felt like the tooling allowed us to move a little bit faster with that. Yeah. Okay, so you're essentially hooking in kind of more or less ORM level as opposed to kind of direct to database, which totally makes sense considering the configurability of WordPress. One of the kind of common concerns is like, okay, you're opening up this very flexible graph to query against and serendipity is always a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> in yeah. that people will use things in strange ways if you let them. And I'm curious, like, <laughs> did people end up kind of linking together and querying things up to present performance problems? Yeah, um, that's definitely... In, in terms of, like, how the database is indexed and, right, you can't index everything. Yeah, that's definitely possible. Like, the core WP GraphQL, we try and be pretty responsible with what we expose. Like, there's some commonly known things to avoid in WordPress. Like, there's something called a meta query, right? You can store meta of objects in WordPress. So, so whether it's posts or users or something else, and that is not indexed. And those queries on small sites, not a big deal. Big sites can be very problematic. So like, I don't expose that by default because mm. I don't want you to just think, oh, it's super easy to do this. Yeah, it's easy, but it's not good. So you can expose it yourself if you decide that for this project, it makes sense. Cool, go ahead. I'm not going to make it too easy for you, right? I want to try and be a little bit responsible. That said, there's other things that like, since GraphQL is very relational, right? Like I can query a list of posts and then I can query the author of the post and then I can query the author's most recent posts and then the author of that post and then so on and so forth. So there are ways to exhaust servers that way. We do provide some tooling around that so you can set like query depth limiting in the settings, there's concepts called query complexity analysis. And we don't have yet anything out of the box where you can customize that, but we have the code APIs where you can. So if you wanted to customize, like, say, give posts a value of 10, and anytime you query 100 posts, okay, all of a sudden we're at whatever, 10,000 or whatever points that is. And so you can have a cap, say, anything over 5,000 points, let's reject. So you can tell the client, hey, you have the freedom to query what you want, but at a certain point, break it up into multiple requests, please. Give the server some room to breathe. So there's tooling around that. So you can limit things like query depth or query complexity. You can also limit the API completely to like authenticated only requests, If depending on what you're building. Like at the newspaper, we only needed authenticated requests because we're doing syndication from one site that we had access to another. So for that use case, it didn't have to be like a public thing. It is, you can go query stuff publicly from most of those sites. But yeah, so yeah, we have tooling around that to let you have an open 
API, but not hopefully prevent your site from being compromised. Um, now we, like I mentioned, we also respect the authentication authorization stuff. So you're not like at risk of activating the plugin all of a sudden having private data like draft posts that haven't been published yet. They're not going to be exposed to folks that don't have permission to see that stuff. So Interesting. Yeah, I think this kind of starts to shed light on some of the sort of API design differences between how you're setting up GraphQL. So while often with, say, like a REST API, you're, you're trying to figure out how can you kind of make your ugly database look more sensible in terms of the stuff that you get and try to right-size things, kind of Goldilocks sizing. Since I get here and the way you're describing it is it's really more, we're exposing kind of what the database has to offer for the most part, but then just trying to keep you out of trouble where we know there's going to be potential problems. Are there any other kind of design considerations when you've thought through this over the years of like, things that are unique to designing GraphQL? Yeah, relationships, I think, are a big part of it. Since it is a graph and you can connect things, there's something in the Relay or in the GraphQL ecosystem called Relay, and there's a specification for how they recommend you design GraphQL APIs. So it's not a requirement of using GraphQL, but it's commonly used in the GraphQL ecosystem. And there's a concept called connections, so you can design a GraphQL API however you want. You could have a single field that's hello world when it returns a string and that's your entire API. So there's like, doesn't matter how you want to design it. But Relay has a convention called convention, connections um, and it has terminology like edges and nodes. And so you can register like a, for us, we have like a post connection. Okay, that allows you to query a list of posts. So you query it as posts, and then you can say edges, nodes, and then ask for the actual fields on each node, like ID, title, date, things like that. It's a little confusing at first. Like if, if you're not familiar with it, you're like, what is this? I've never, what's an edge, right? But the power it unlocks is relational data. So a real use case at the newspaper, we had a feature where editors, so WordPress has a media library, right? So editors, photo editors could upload pictures and then the authors could take any picture from the media library and put it in their article. Sometimes folks would want to use the same image on two different articles. So it's two articles, same image, and they want to have a different caption, like localized to that story, right? So now you have a relationship between post A and image A and post B and image B or an image A, but the caption's different. So it's not the images caption and it's not the post caption. It's this thing that exists between the relationship of that image with the post. And so that's relational edge data in a graph API. So now I can query the post from any direction I want. I can get it in a list of posts. I can get it directly by ID. I could get it as a node in relationship to a user's recent post, right? And I can get the properties of that post and they'll always be the same. I can get that image on article A, article B. I can get it directly by ID and the image will always be the same. But if I query the image in relationship to post A, and ask for the caption on the edge, that will be a new field, right? But it will only exist in that relationship. So if I'm caching these objects somewhere, like in a client-side cache or wherever, if we were to expose that caption as a property of the image, then that caption would be overridden in the cache for post A and post B, and all of a sudden you'd have inaccurate data. But if we can expose it on the edge. So that's a pretty powerful thing. I think GraphQL enables that 
like for us, and this might be possible with other REST APIs, but the WordPress REST API doesn't have any concepts of this like middle ground area of like, where can I expose relational data? Typically, you'd have to expose it as like, here's some big payload of relational data for every object this thing is connected with. And then you got to pluck it if it makes sense for your use case. But like, we're going to give it to you where GraphQL says, hey, you only need to ask for it if it makes sense for your application. And there might be RESTful patterns where you can do these things that I'm just not familiar with because I know WordPress doesn't have it. But that's a big thing. And that's opened up a lot of possibilities for us to do stuff with that data that has typically been tricky to work with. Sure. It sounds a lot like GraphQL doesn't really mind being exposed as a database so much, whereas REST really starts to fall short when you expose it as a database. Some of the more painful APIs I've ever worked with, the team sat down and kind of went, here's our database, let's get that JSON going over the wire then. And then you do have to get these giant responses and you do have to make loads of requests. Yeah, it kind of seems like GraphQL is a bit more attuned to being presented as a graph as a database over the wire and then letting people pick the bits they're interested in instead of trying to guess the use cases up front. Yeah, that's a big part of it is giving the client control over what's important to them. So the server's just saying, here's what I feel is safe to expose to you and you pick what you want. And so, yeah, it gives a lot more control to the client. It's not a one-to-one map of the database. Like It's not just like, hey, we read the MySQL schema and here you go. It's not that, but it is. it has more of a feeling of that, like you have more of the freedom to query what you want, but still respecting the application layer, right? Like the logic, the business logic layer of WordPress too. It's not just a straight to WordPress. So plugins can hook in. There's a lot of like gated content plugins, for example, in WordPress where you can build like membership sites and things like that. So that type of thing is still respected where maybe specific fields are public, like the title and the date and the link to the post but the actual content is gated, right? So you'd have to make a request as an authenticated user to get the content. So you could get a list of posts in your headless oh, I see. Yeah. front end, right? Because part of the data is public, but if you want to, the content, you got to pay or sign up or whatever. And then the follow-up request, once you have that authentication, boom, here's your content, right? Yeah, it gives the application developer the freedom to ask for what they want. It doesn't mean you're going to get it, right? The server still has the permission to say, I'm going to give you a null value or an empty string or whatever, like the server decides still, but you can ask for, like the schema tells you what is available to ask for. So in high kind of read environments like this, where presumably the writes are like probably one to a million in some cases versus reads on a blog, in kind of a coming from a REST world, you'd want to lean on like HTTP caching and maybe some proxying to help kind of buffer that load. Knowing that like, you know, GraphQL, everything's kind of not very HTTP friendly in the sense of caching. Are you just having to kind of rely on the the application layers below that to deal with it? Or how do you address any potential yeah. caching needs for scale? So a little bit of both. Yeah, we can take advantage of like things like I mentioned, Redis, Memcache, like persistent object caches. So that's part of it. So you can use GraphQL with HTTP. So there's a couple ways to do it. Like you can actually go like denverpose.com GraphQL type of query in the in your URL and get it, open your network tools. You'll see the first one is like 100 milliseconds. Keep hitting it. It'll be like 20 milliseconds, right? Because you're hitting a cache now. So you can use it over HTTP and it is cacheable. That said, caching validation gets a little trickier, right? Because with REST, you have an individual resource and that's fairly predictable. Like this endpoint is always this thing. If this thing changes, invalidate that. GraphQL, you don't know ahead of time what the request is going to ask. So it might have post authors 
images, things like that. So that's the trickier part. And there's solutions for that. With HTTP caching, though, there's a couple of solutions. So you can use query strings and just write your query. A lot of GraphQL queries are long, though, and there's query string limitations. So there's another concept called persisted queries in GraphQL. So it's basically the client MD5 hat or SHA-256 hashes the query string into a smaller string, sends that over to the server, the server unhashes, or the server has a copy of it with that hash as an ID, and then it executes the query. So then you can treat that similar to a REST call where you hit an HTTP request for this specific predefined query, and then you get the response there, and then users can set various ways to invalidate that. So you basically, in your WordPress admin, have a list of queries that you want to respect this way. And then you can connect those queries to be invalidated however you choose. So this query could be invalidated when a post is published. This query could be invalidated when a user updates their last name or whatever, like, or their bio or anything like that. So you can hook specific queries up to be invalidated in various ways and then still benefit from HTTP requests. And then there's other tools in the ecosystem like GraphCDN that does this as a service as well. So you can use GraphCDN with any GraphQL API and it's a proxy. So it takes your request results, puts it on a CDN, and then you're talking to the CDN. And then you just have to tell it when something in your system changed to invalidate whatever query you want to invalidate. And then you can also, the easiest way is TTL. You can say, hey, this query will be cached for 30 seconds or a minute and then just regenerate after that. Yeah, I think that was like one of the big first pushbacks with folks. It's like, well, everything's a post. Like, this isn't any better than SOAP in terms of, you know, HTTP level yeah. caching. You have to use GET, right? So it's been good to see some of these solutions come together. I know like Apollo is one of the, the big places that folks use kind of these persistent yeah. queries and stuff in more enterprise architecture, right? There's also in... This is a really cool feature of GraphQL too, is the subscriptions, right? So you can query data, you can mutate data, but you can also subscribe to data. WP GraphQL at the moment doesn't support subscriptions, but we're working on it. But the idea there is that your client application can say, hey, I want to query this data, but I want to subscribe to these specific events. And whenever that happens on the server, send me a payload matching what I'm asking for. So instead of like webhooks where it's like, hey, I want to subscribe to this webhook and you'll just get some random payload that may or may not be what you need. GraphQL says you can subscribe to this event and then you can still choose exactly what fields you want. So that your query gets sent to the server. The server then has a record of who's listening to what specific events and what fields they want in response. So you can have two different clients listening to the same event, but getting unique different payloads. So that's another way to deal with it. Like you can maybe do your initial request, maybe hit a cached resource even. But then if anything ever happens on the server, you're getting notified of it right away. You don't have to necessarily follow up and keep hitting the the endpoint to see if, hey, has anything changed? Like the server can tell you, hey, this thing changed. Um, So that's another convention that's, I think, fairly unique to GraphQL in the API space. Yeah, I know some of the like HTTP2 server stuff get some of these kind of pub sub yeah. sort of things. Yeah. But, you know, like most things with HTTP2, I think it's like the, uh, as you said, with the rest stuff, it's like kind of out of the box, you get nothing. Uh, so you got to yeah. kind of figure out how to make that work, which has been a big appeal for gRPC, doing a lot of the yeah. HTTP2 multiplexing and some of these things, just batteries included. Yeah, as far as I know, the subscription thing is like just WebSockets, right? So, but what GraphQL adds there is it's a standard way of doing it because 
when you're doing a, a REST API, you have to decide, do we want to put this WebSocket URL they can subscribe to like in the body somewhere? Or we can use like Hatios for that to like provide a link somewhere? Or do we put it in the links header? So it's another time where you have to kind of choose what your standard is. And the solution there is like, we'll make a style guide so it's consistent at our company, but then a different company does it differently. So yeah, it's another place where it's kind of batteries included. Do it this way. There's no other way of doing yeah. it. Do it this way. <laughs> yeah, and there's some stuff that's still ambiguous. Like WebSockets is the most common transport mechanism, but there's GraphQL itself doesn't enforce that as a transport. You could do a webhook-based one if you wanted. You could do, shoot, you could send emails if you want. Like, like you know, if you, it doesn't really matter. Like, I don't know why you do that, but it's like it really doesn't matter how you transport it. The standard is that users can write the query, the subscription query, server has knowledge of that, and then can send something. But yeah, WebSockets is the most common transport, but it's not like, that's not enforced still. Oh, well, uh, let's see. I think we kind of hopped along a long trail of GraphQL, uh, you know, poking at bits here of of what you've learned in building this out for uh, this GraphQL API for WordPress. I guess summarizing some of these things, one is like maybe being mindful of kind of the underlying database's performance potential and how you build your graph. That was certainly one thing we touched on. Kind of some more emerging solutions for caching and being mindful of the fact that everything in GraphQL by default's post. I think that definitely presents some distinct design decisions to be made. Any other kind of closing thoughts or or things that I missed there and summarizing kind of tips for listeners that are just getting into this and trying to figure out what are the pitfalls, things to watch out for? Oh, let's see. Yeah, I think we probably covered most of them. I do have like some articles on like WPGraphQL.com if you're interested more about like specifically, I mentioned like the relay spec, the edges and nodes and connections. That's something maybe is confusing. So we've got articles and videos and stuff on that. If that's something that maybe you try this stack out and you're confused by it. So we have that, lots of documentation over there. And then, yeah, just one thing to point out, like it's a developer tool too. I know some in the WordPress ecosystem, at least you find a plugin you think it's going to do something like magic for you right away. And like it, this does, it gives you a magic API, but it's meant for developers. So if you're not a developer, this might not be a plugin for you, but but yeah, so just keep that in mind if you're going to install this. Like, it gives you an API, but you still have to go build something with it. It doesn't magically build an app for you or whatever. And, and I guess the other uh, potential segment of listeners here might be folks who are in this kind of WordPress kind of ecosystem and, and looking at using this. And any other kind of tips or tricks you'd want to pass along here? Yeah, so I'm going to plug a tool called Local. You go localwp.com. It's a tool that lets you spin up WordPress sites on your machine. I use it every day when I'm developing for WP GraphQL. So if you're looking to get started with WordPress or have been using WordPress for years and just want to spin up sites quickly, super cool tool. And like I said, I yeah, I use it every single day when I'm working on WP GraphQL. Cool. I guess any other uh, thoughts worth sharing on kind of where you see this, you know, WordPress ecosystem going? I mean, we're talking about this thing kind of slowly becoming a headless kind of engine for content management as opposed to the LAMP stack blog thing, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think WordPress will largely continue to be what it is today. Like, I think the dominant part of the ecosystem for a while is going to be PHP rendered pages. Like, I don't think, I think as Headless is growing in popularity, it's still I mean, 40% of the web is WordPress. And I bet Headless is 1% of that 40, if even. So it's a, yeah. it's a real, it's, it's growing. 
but it's still a small market share. Yeah, like what's the reason that that small portion of the market is going for these kinds of things? And if someone's thinking about this, what would make sense for them to be part of that 1%? Yeah, so some of it, like I mentioned earlier, some of it's your use case. If you need WordPress data in a non-PHP environment, like a native application, that's obviously one reason. The other one, like I mentioned, I think is a big one too, is new developers today are not learning PHP. You're learning JavaScript primarily boot camps and colleges and whatnot are teaching that stack. And so if you're trying to hire developers, you might not be able to hire developers that have deep PHP knowledge. And so that comes with it too. Like, hey, I can build you this beautiful site. I just need the data, right? And so that's one reason. Performance issues, WordPress. WordPress can be made fast, but sometimes it's a full-time job to keep it fast. Something like Gatsby it'd be like a full-time job to make it slow. Like it's just fast, right? Um, That's what it does. So a lot of people find that attractive, right? Like I can spend my creative, my time being creative building the site, but not have to spend all my resources on performance, right? So a lot of folks turn to something like Gatsby for that, where they can be creative and not have to worry about performance. And so using, getting data out of WordPress into Gatsby has been a big push, especially with like smaller creative agencies that, don't want to hire resources to just be server performance experts. They, they're creative people that want to do creative things and not worry about that side of it. So that's a big use case that I've I've seen grow quite a bit. And then e-commerce also comes in with that because e-commerce performance is is obviously crucial. And so folks have turned to things like Gatsby again to get this incredibly fast page load times. This is Gatsby being one of the static site generators uh, yeah. like Hugo and the Golang world, it, things like yeah, that. Right? Yeah, exactly. And static it, and as opposed be, to WordPress traditionally is like kind of a dynamic where, web application yeah. where you're having to maintain scale. Yeah, Yeah. so it, every user hits the page and boom, it's just served from CDN. There's no request to server or anything like that. And so e-commerce is turning to that stack a lot too to get the really fast page load times. But then you have dynamic stuff like check out and add to cart and things like that, which still have to talk to a server. So you get the benefit of the really fast initial page load time, get the user interested, but then you can still do dynamic stuff over APIs. And so there's that portion of the market too, that's really performance optimized focused, but still has that need to do stuff on the server too. So it's static pages, but not static functionality, right? So there's that portion of the market that's popping up quite a bit. Very cool. Well, uh, Jason, thank you for helping, you know, fill us in. I think this is a good kind of, it's a different look, right? We tend to talk to a lot of folks that are kind of like, you know, building some platform and GraphQL is part of their strategy. And I think this is an interesting one to look at kind of the open source CMS, just a totally different look from I think other guests we've had. So I think it provoked some interesting thoughts here, especially around the shift to static site gen and kind of the prevalence of React and more SPA stuff. And so it's definitely a different element to think about. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a fun chat. And Phil, thanks for joining on this one. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.